Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Sometimes on my Patreon, I do these bonus episodes called Casual Reads. They're not as highly produced and edited, and it's like you and I are just hanging out while I read you a story, and you can hear cars drive by my window, and I mess up here and there while I'm reading. I also interject with my own opinion once in a while. Well, this week I wanted to do something similar here on the main show. One for a more relaxing change of pace after last week's epic episode. And two, just to give you a taste of a little of what goes on over at Patreon. As you know, I have a guided nightmare episode available on my feed, and any new ones will be available over at Patreon in the future. I only have one more currently, it's about a snowy cabin. But life seems to be evening out lately, and I will soon be having a lot more time for bonus episodes. I had this question posed to me on Patreon and on the community board, and no, unfortunately, podcasting is not my full-time job yet. (laughs) It would be amazing for it to be in the future, but currently I still have a normal job. Well, it's actually not a very normal job, but it is my day job, and so I had an inquiry as to why I don't produce bonus episodes more frequently, and it's because, honestly, sometimes these episodes, the free ones here on my feed, take me a few days to, because I do all of the editing and sound effects and everything myself, and producing and recording and all that good stuff. I do it all by myself in my apartment, and a lot of podcasters tend to have like a team of people, or they send stuff out to get edited, And not saying that they're, I'm any better than them or anything. I'm just, you know, I'm just starting out and everything is DIY. So currently between my day job and doing the normal episodes that take me so long, I don't really have a ton of time to produce bonus episodes, but I'm hoping to get a few more out uh, soon. In fact, I have, I was just in talks with another podcast about doing a collaboration for the Patreon soon. So I'm really excited about that. Anyway, yesterday I released a true crime ASMR episode over there as well. At the end of this episode, I will be playing the first part of that episode as sort of a teaser. So if you're into more traditional ASMR, then stick around for after the show to hear a bit of me whispering about unsolved cold cases. Now, for our topic this week. Put on your tinfoil hats because it's about to get weird. I've mentioned in the past that my favorite paranormal phenomenon is time slips. Time slips aren't as popular as aliens, ghosts, or cryptids in the paranormal community, but they are so incredibly fascinating to me. For those who aren't familiar with them, Wikipedia has a great definition. A time slip is a paranormal phenomenon in which an individual or a group of individuals allegedly travels through time, thereby witnessing events in the past. They can also be referred to as dimensional anomalies. Now, this isn't like falling into a wormhole or getting into one of H.G. Wells's time machines. The person or persons involved don't usually know anything is happening to them until they notice that the world around them has changed. For instance, you're walking down the street, and you get an odd feeling. When you look around, you notice all the cars that start to pass are from the 1950s. 
and the bookstore you're about to walk into is now a clothing store that sells what looks to be vintage fashions. That is actually part of a real account that I will get to later. I've scoured the internet for some great stories about this insane phenomenon. I will link them all in the show notes if you'd like to do your own further research. The thing I love most about time slips is so many of them sound so unbelievable, yet there isn't really a benefit for the storyteller to make them up. There isn't a market for them like ghost stories or alien stories. I spoke a little about ghost reenactment shows on my last live stream and how people definitely make things up just for the attention or for the money they think they'll make. By the way, I have personally worked on reenactment shows and there is not much money to be had for anyone but the network. So I would look into a different scam if I were you, if you're looking to get rich quick. Also, a lot of the people who have experienced time slips seem genuinely confused and bothered by them. I honestly can't imagine what it's like to look around and you're suddenly in a different place in time entirely, or another faction of time slips isn't even slipping into the past, but losing time. There's a great firsthand account of one in my last True Tales episode. Kayla and her friend were driving to her friend's boyfriend's house and somehow ended up driving on the same road for hours. And all of the houses were in the wrong order. They should have hit the freeway eventually, but instead, they finally ended up running into the road they had come from. Please go back and listen to that one. That story gave me the chilliest of chills. I know Kayla well enough to know that she was absolutely not making it up, and she even had a theory that they had somehow ended up in some sort of other place, dimension-wise. She referenced the missing 411, which is a whole other can of worms you should look up. So we may as well start out with the most famous time slip story. If you've heard of time slips, then you've probably heard this one already. It's probably the first one I heard as well. It's called the Moberly Jourdain incident, also known as the ghosts of Petite Trianon or Versailles. Don't you like my French accent? It's probably impeccable. <laughs> okay, so the Moberly Jourdain incident. Um, in 1911, Moberly and Jourdain published a book entitled An Adventure under the names Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont. Their book describes a visit they made to the Petit Trianon, a small chateau in the grounds of the Palace of Versailles, where they claim to have seen the gardens as they had been in the late 18th century, as well as ghosts, including Marie Antoinette and others. So Charlotte Moberly was born in 1846 and was the 10th of 15 children. She came from a professional background. Her father, George Moberly, was the headmaster of Winchester College and later Bishop of Salisbury. In 1886, Moberly became the first principal of a hall of residence for young women, St. Hugh's College in Oxford. It became apparent that Moberly needed someone to help run the college and Jourdain was asked to become Moberly's assistant. Her name was Eleanor. Eleanor Jourdain was born in 1863, was the eldest of 10 children. Her father, the Reverend Francis Jourdain, was the vicar of Ashburn in... 
laugh away, my UK listeners, but Derbyshire, that is definitely not how you say that, but Derbyshire, sure, we'll go with that. She was the sister of art historian Margaret Jourdain and mathematician Philip Jourdain. She went to school in Manchester, unlike most girls of the time who were educated at home. Jourdain was also the author of several textbooks, ran a school of her own, and after the incident became the vice principal of St. Hughes's College. Before Jourdain was appointed, it was decided that the two women should get to know each other better. Jourdain owned an apartment in Paris where she tutored English children, and so Moberly went to stay with her. According to Moberly and Jourdain, the two women decided to visit the Palace of Versailles as part of several trips. On the 10th of August, 1901, they traveled by train to Versailles. They did not think much of the palace after touring it, so they decided to walk through the gardens to the Petit Trianon. On the way, they reached the Grand Trianon and found it was closed to the public. By the way, they weren't impressed by Versailles. Like, maybe they thought it was too gaudy. I don't know, but it's, I mean, I haven't been. I've seen pictures, though, and it's, pretty darn impressive. Then again, also it was 1901. So I don't know what state it was in, in 1901. It could have been, you know, wallpaper, all the, you know, gilded shit was all wallpapered over. Who knows? Anyway, they traveled with a Bidecker guidebook, but the two women soon became lost after missing the turn for the main avenue. And before we find out where the ladies were going and what they saw, Oh, you guys, this French. I, <laughs> they, they missed their street. I'm not going to try. Anyway, they passed this road and entered a lane where, unknown to them, they passed their destination. Moberly noticed a woman shaking a white cloth out of a window, and Jourdain noticed an old deserted farmhouse, outside of which was an old plow. At this point, they claimed that a feeling of oppression and dreariness came over them, also, just a note, that is something that I've heard in other time slip stories, is you get a weird, sad feeling, like they said, oppression and dreariness. Anyway, they then saw that some men who looked like palace gardeners, who told them to go straight on, Moberly later described the men as very dignified officials, dressed in long grayish green coats with small three-cornered hats. Jourdain noticed a cottage with a woman and a girl in the doorway. The woman was holding out a jug to the girl. Jourdain described it as tableau vivant, a living picture, much like Madame Tussaud's waxworks. Moberly did not observe the cottage, but felt the atmosphere change. She wrote, Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked in a tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred in the trees. They reached the edge of a wood, close to the Temple de la Mort, and came across a man seated beside a garden kiosk, wearing a cloak and a large shady hat. After crossing a bridge, they reached the gardens in front of the palace, and Moberly noticed a lady sketching on the grass who looked at them. She later described what she saw in great detail. The lady was wearing a light summer dress, on her head was a shady white hat, and she had lots of fair hair. Moberly thought she was just a tourist at first, but the dress appeared to be old-fashioned. 
Moberly came to believe that the lady was Marie Antoinette. Jourdain, however, did not see the lady. After this, they were directed round to the entrance and joined a party of other visitors. After touring the house, they had tea at the Hotel de Reservoir before returning to Jourdain's apartment. After leaving Versailles, neither Jourdain nor Mobley mentioned the incident to one another until a week later. Basically, after that, Jourdain and Moberly decided that they thought that Versailles was probably haunted. By the way, I got a lot of this off of the Wikipedia page. Um, it's got its own Wikipedia page. Um, so they went back and they decided to kind of do a little like ghost hunt. So they went back to their uh, the Trianon Gardens and they noticed that a lot of landmarks were missing that they had very vividly remembered before, such as the kiosk and the bridge and the grounds were full of people, which it wasn't before. It was just kind of the two of them wandering around because I think, like I said earlier, it was closed off. They both did their own research and they actually came across a painting of the Comte de Vaud... Okay, the Vaudriol? <laughs> I don't know how to say that, but it's this dude. They came across a painting of this dude and they recognized him as one of the men they saw that day. And so they kind of had the idea that they had just seen a haunting, not that they had gone back in time or anything. Um, they both reported to have many paranormal experiences before and after their adventure. And they wrote this book. A lot of people tried to say, you know, they tried to give explanations for what happened. One woman um, named Eleanor Mildred Sidgwick tried to say that they had just experienced normal events, but they had misinterpreted their own events, which I, that's a really odd, I don't know, to me, that's an odd thing to say. It, it's very, okay, a lot of the explanations that they got, at least during the, the time they were alive, were very pacifying for women, just kind of like, oh, no, you must have just misunderstood. And that was about it. But they did, in 1903, an old map of the Trianon Gardens was found, and it did show a bridge that the two women had claimed to cross, and it's not on any other map, and it doesn't exist anymore, So, or and at the time, it didn't exist. So that's pretty interesting. Um, Jourdain, though, did go... I'm going to be delicate. She kind of... Uh, went she had an issue she had a, a kind of a psychotic break later well at least that's what was said she that's what her her haters said basically this is exact i'll just read to you exactly what wikipedia said during the first world war jordan the dominant personality of the pair who had succeeded as principal of saint hughes became convinced that a german spy was hiding in the college after developing increasingly autocratic behavior she died suddenly in 1924 in the middle of an academic scandal over her leadership of the college her conduct having provoked mass resignations of academic staff um it doesn't say how she died i'm not i really don't know um and also that was uh jordan moberly had uh, a few stories about seeing 
apparitions. She claimed to have seen the Louvre in 19, at the Louvre in 1914, an apparition of the Roman Emperor Constantine, a man of unusual height, wearing a gold crown and a toga, who was not observed by anyone else. So they were kind of known for having these stories, which, you know, could maybe prove further that they were seeing what they really thought they were seeing or disprove. I'm not really sure. <laughs> you really should check out the, the Wikipedia page for the explanations because some of them are very like, you know, they're, they're pretty understandable. Just, you know, they misinterpreted like the one woman said they misinterpreted what they saw or maybe there were reenactors there that day that they didn't know about and which Versailles is known to do and I'm not really sure if they did them at the time but they it's been I've heard that they did already start doing reenactments at the time so they could have been reenactors just kind of on a break in a closed part of the you know the gardens uh one psychologist suggested that it was a hallucinatory experience uh, there are a lot of, I feel like some of the explanations are almost crazier than just believing that they had a paranormal experience. Um, some of them are pretty good explanations, though. Apparently, this French poet used to live near Versailles around that time and did say that they used to have fancy dress parties at Versailles where people would dress up. My next favorite story of time slips actually is another one that happened in France. Um, this was again, uh, some English folks who were traveling to Spain and stopped over in France in the 1970s. Uh, they began their trip in Dover in the, be in the beginning of October in 1979. Their names were Jeff and Pauline Simpson and their friends, Len and Cynthia Gisby. So on their way to Spain, they stopped in Monte Limar, France on October the 3rd, the all of the local um, inns were full, but a helpful man dressed in old-fashioned plum-colored in an old-fashioned plum-colored suit in the lobby pointed them down the road to a hotel that might be able to put them up for the night. The road they traveled down was cobbled and narrow, and they couldn't help but noticing very old-fashioned posters for a circus lining their route. They stopped at a different inn for further directions. Um, they eventually found themselves by two buildings, one a police station, the other at an old-fashioned two-story building marked hotel. Upon entering the hotel, they found themselves in the hotel bar and discovered that although the owner couldn't speak English, he understood their requests for a room, and after dinner, they headed up to see them. They found the rooms to be clean, but very outdated. There was no glass in the window, but wooden shutters instead. The door could be locked only by means of wooden catch. There was no telephone, there were bolsters but no pillows, and the plumbing was antique. But though basic, it was perfectly acceptable for their purposes, a nice long sleep. In the morning they awoke and headed down for breakfast. They were startled by the appearance of a few others in the hotel. One was a woman wearing a long dress and button boots and carrying a little dog. Two police officers came into the hotel wearing clothes unlike any other officers the couples had seen. The couples finished up and prepared to leave. They asked one of the police officers for directions back to the auto route and on to Avignon, but he didn't seem to understand the word. The couples put this down to their poor pronunciation, like mine probably was. 
He gave them some directions, which they later found led them to an old out-of-the-way road. When they settled up their bill, they were in for another not-unwelcome surprise. In total, their bill came to 19 francs, which was about one-thirteenth of what they would have expected. They inquired with the police officer again, as they felt there may have been some mistake, but he assured them all was well and handed over the paltry sum, and they were off to sunny Spain. Now, here's where it gets real weird. On their return trip, they were unable to locate this hotel, despite finding the right road, and and when they inquired about it, they were told that they knew of no such nearby hotel, and they denied the existence of anyone in a plum-colored suit working for them. The couples were forced to stay in a hotel in Lyon and play, pay over 200 francs for a room. When they got home, they found the pictures they had taken in the hotel were missing. Not blank, nor obscured, but gone. And the reel had been filled with other pictures. Later investigation found the reel showed markings halfway along, showing the camera had tried to take pictures but had failed. They have been back to visit since, but they have found no trace of the hotel. Although somewhere similar was found, they denied this was the hotel they stayed in. They later identified the uniforms worn by the gendarme as those used before 1905. So this one was really interesting. And I've read in other ones that the husbands specifically remember taking pictures of their wives in front of the windows because they had no glass in them. They thought it was so charming. And so they took pictures of their wives in front of these shuttered windows and they were just gone, just gone. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with France, but apparently if you visit, just slip right into a wormhole. So we're going to move on now to something called the Liverpool time slips. Um, basically there's a street in Liverpool called bold street and several time slips have happened there. Several accounts of them anyway. Um, it's incredibly fascinating because it's all in one place. So I don't know people who are more tinfoil hat friendly. Tell me, is that, does that mean there's like a vortex there or something? I'm not sure, but we're, let me tell you a few of the stories that have happened on bold street. So the first one happened in 1996, and a man named Frank set off with his wife to go shopping in Liverpool. His wife decided that she wanted to go and buy a book at Waterstones, the large bookstore, and they started to walk towards the area of the shop. As they approached Bold Street, Frank decided to go to another shop first, but bumped into a friend and stopped to chat in the street. His wife went ahead without him. A few moments later, Frank said goodbye, visited his shop, and turned back to meet his wife. After reaching Bold Street, he headed on towards the bookstore. As he approached, he glanced up and was surprised to see the name, Crips, above the door. As he was about to cross over to see what was going on, a van swept past him with the name Cardins on the side. The van driver honked his old-fashioned horn and drove past. Looking around, Frank suddenly realized that things were not quite what they should be. He looked at the cars driving past and realized that they were all old-fashioned vehicles, such as people would drive back in the 50s and 60s. And then he noticed the people. Men were wearing hats and masks, and the women were dressed in headscarves, full skirts, and had old-fashioned hairstyles, such as women wore just after the war. 
By this time, Frank was beginning to feel slightly freaked out. He carried on crossing the road and headed towards the store. As he got closer, he noticed through the window handbags, shoes, and umbrellas. Suddenly, he saw a young woman standing looking totally bemused up at the shop sign. She was wearing modern clothes and as she saw him approaching, smiled at him. Frank went into the shop, closely followed by the young woman. When they entered, he was surprised and pleased to see that it had indeed turned back into a bookshop. The young woman smiled, shook her head and said, That was strange. I thought it was a new clothes shop. Then she walked away, looking extremely puzzled. Frank never stopped talking about this. Was it a time slip? Evidently, Cripps was a woman's shop that sold clothes and other goods, and Cardin's was also a well-known Liverpool firm that owned vans around the time Frank found himself in. Now, this is story number two from Bold Street in Liverpool. The second story concerns a young girl by the name of Imogen, She had decided to go into Liverpool to buy her sister, Abigail, a few things for her new baby. Upon arriving, she was happy to see a new mother care store had opened up on the corner of Lord Street and Whitechapel. She wandered around the store and picked up a few baby items such as cardigans, baby bibs, and gloves. She was surprised to see how cheap the items were, but thought that they were on offer as the store had just opened. Taking them to the counter, she tried to pay with her credit card. The staff member looked at her suspiciously and went off to get a manager. When she came back, she looked at the card and told Imogen that they didn't take cards. So disappointed, Imogen went and put the items back as she didn't have any money with her. When she got home, she told her mother what had happened. Her mother was surprised and really puzzled. That store closed years ago, she said. There's a bank there now. In fact, it's where I have my account. Not believing her, Imogen took her mother back to the same place the next day. Sure enough, the store wasn't there. It was just a bank, just as her mother had told her. There are probably about 10 time slip stories I found from Liverpool, and the specifically around Bold Street. Um, I'm only going to read one more, and this one is pretty neat because it's got two different sides of the story. This one they named A Thief Goes Back to 1967. The third tale is of a young man named Sean, who, while shoplifting in Liverpool back in 2006, ran away from a security guard and headed down Hanover Street. Trying to shake off the guard, Sean, age 19, turned into a dead-end street called Brooks Alley. By this time, he was out of breath and started to get a tight sensation in his chest. He soon realized that Actually, it wasn't a problem with him, but the atmosphere around him. Remember I talked about that weird, oppressing feeling sometimes people feel? He waited for the guard to come around the corner after him, but he never appeared. So, thinking he had given him the slip, he sauntered back out and started to walk down Hanover Street again. But he soon realized that something was wrong. The road looked different, and so did the pavement. He noticed cars driving by that looked very old-fashioned, and the roadworks that he knew were there were now gone. Soon he saw that the people around him were wearing strange clothes. Crossing over to Bold Street, he noticed that there were traffic lights where there weren't before, and bushes growing around the Lyceum near a bar that he recognized. He carried on walking, realizing that actually something was really odd. Then he began to panic. 
he realized that somehow he had stepped back in time and the time slip was not going away. Then he remembered his cell phone. Taking it out of his pocket, he tried to get a signal, but of course it didn't work. Eventually, he began to really panic, but spotted a kiosk selling newspapers and headed over. Leaning over the stand, he took a look at the front page of the Daily Post. There, in bold lettering, was the date. 18th of May, 1967. He wondered what to do, what happens if he can't get back to his own time. What about his family and friends? So, speeding up his pace, he reached H. Samuel, the jeweler's, and tried his phone once again. This time it worked. Sighing with relief, he looked around and realized that he had returned to the present. But the strange thing was, he could still see, down at the end of the road, people still walking around in 1967. By this time, Sean had seen enough and dived onto a bus to go home. When he was interviewed by the local newspaper, he stated over four times the exact account. Now, you may think that Sean was making the story up to escape from the guard, but the strange tale didn't end there. When the security guard was interviewed, he stated that when he ran after Sean and turned down the dead-end alley after him, he said that Sean had completely disappeared. So, I read a little bit more about the Liverpool Bold Street phenomenon, and apparently there's an underground train system, and they... There's a part under Bold Street that makes a circle, and um, a lot of people think maybe that's what it is. It's like this circle of electricity constantly running over under this part of the city is creating some sort of weirdness, you know, just kind of a, a giant time machine. This next one I found on Reddit, and it comes from a sandwich shop. It's by Reddit user clever username seven it was posted four years ago and the title is i work at a popular sandwich shop and i think i may have made a sandwich for a paranormal entity slash time traveler slash matrix glitcher so i know a fair amount of these stories are feasible to explain and are basic coincidences at most but hear me out this may be long but i was thoroughly disturbed last night at work And it seems like a glitch for me to have even found the subreddit the day after my experience. Let me just say that I am known to be a pretty observant guy. All my friends and family who know me even slightly well are aware that I notice everything. It is pretty hard to slip something past me. Not to say I'm proud or a cocky asshole or anything, but it's just a little background into me before you read this long ass story. Thank you. I have worked at the sandwich joint for over a year and a half. We run a tight-knit crew. I am a good employee in good standing with the owner and manager, and I am a little bit of a night crew manager myself. The restaurant itself is very slow, as we tend to receive maybe 20 to 30 customers within my entire 6 to 7 hour closing shift. This means that I naturally tend to start conversations with customers. I like to figure out where people work their day jobs, where they went to college, how their lives are, and all that stuff. You could say I get personal, but hey, people like it when you're not just a robotic employee. I even met a dude who went to Berkeley Law School, and he told me a lot about life and school and all that, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, 
I like to talk to people. It gets me through the days, you know. And generally, people are pretty damn nice about it. I even have a little mini arsenal of conversation progression. Just headed home after a long day's work, huh? Nice. Where do you work? Oh, that sounds cool. Did you need a degree for that? Oh, nice. Where'd you go to college? Did you like it there? Most conversations are extended versions of that, and it usually gets interesting hearing about such diverse backgrounds. About a week or so ago, this man came in. I would say early 30s, dark hair, dark features, sweatpants, a Nike sweatshirt, and hood up. It was late at night, say 9.30ish, and I was ready to close this bad boy up and get home, but had another half hour to kill. So I said, screw it. Let's start a conversation with this guy. Maybe his dad is like a congressman or something cool. Maybe I'll learn something from him. Holy hell. This guy was creepy as shit. He wouldn't meet my direct eyeline. He would talk to me by looking above or between my eyes. He kept his left hand tucked into the back of his pants waistline. I realize that sentence is a bit hard to visualize, but the best visual I can give is like when people tuck a gun on the back of their pants. It was like he was clutching a gun. He kept his hand there the entire time. He was looking nervous and reluctant, as most people who commit robberies do. And as the sandwich-making process progressed, I was becoming more and more sure that I was about to be robbed. He asked for a ham sandwich on white bread. The way we lay the ham is pretty formulaic, but due to his creepy demeanor, I was admittedly feeling nervous. The eight slices of ham ended up being folded over at different ratios, laid on top of each other sloppily, and did not look too appetizing of a sandwich. The man asked for Swiss cheese. The formula calls for four slices, so, as I always do, I picked up a stack of the triangularly cut cheese and fan it all out in such a way where I can grab four and throw the rest back into the pile. I lay the cheese in a less-than-orderly fashion, and the sandwich is still clearly missing its picture-perfectness that you see on TV. These details may seem irrelevant, but I just want you to know the gist of it. You'll see why. The man asked if I could toast his sandwich. This means that I would have to turn my back to him for a few seconds to throw it in the toaster. I was running a lot of shit through my mind, and I was not prepared to turn my back to him. This caused a mini sort of panic, and I grabbed a sandwich and attempted to stand in such a way where I could keep my eye on him with my waist twisted enough to get the sandwich in the toaster, but still be looking at him. As you may have guessed, I dropped it. I dropped the sandwich. I made a basic attempt to catch it as it fell, you know, kind of like flared my knee up and tried to use my waist as sort of a cushion to hold up my elbow to catch the sandwich, but to no avail... I guess just imagine fumbling with your phone and the weird motions your body makes in an attempt to catch it right as you realize you dropped it. You get the idea. I was panicking. Hardcore. Splat. In the few seconds before I looked up, I was bracing myself for a very angry creep staring at me. But he was gone. He had left. He vanished. I didn't even hear the squeak of the door, the footsteps, nothing. I ran outside, I looked left, looked right, looked left again, and no cars were driving away. No cars were even remotely parked close enough for him to be hiding in or behind. He was just gone. The sandwich was still on the ground, 
fallen face down, one of the triangles of cheese landed in just perfect angular contrast with the tiles of the floor. Of the eight pieces of ham on the sandwich, six were left betwixt the bread and the floor, while two pieces flew off and landed adjacent to the cabinet, on top of which the toaster is located. Fast forward to last night. A man much older than the first comes in. I would say 60s, white hair, dark features, probably about 6'6". Was probably the tall, dark, and handsome type dude in the 70s or something. Pretty nice man, up until he started ordering his sandwich. Fuck, I just got chills typing that last sentence because I have no idea how to proceed with the story. It just gets unsettling for me. He ended up asking for white bread. I started to carry on my usual conversation. How's your night going, sir? Just getting off work? The man answered with a stern affirmative and offered no other information. Okay. Clearly this guy didn't want to talk about anything other than his sandwich. Weird. What kind of sandwich for you, sir? Ham. All right. Pretty stern guy. No nonsense. Maybe he's like in the mafia or some shady shit and he got nervous when I asked him about work. All right, fine. Let me make your sandwich and you can get out of here, man. He then reaches behind his waist. In the exact same fucking way the first guy did. I swear to God, the gesture and motion were the exact same smoothness, timing, and form. He kept his left hand there in the exact same way the other man did about a week ago. The same way. Everything started eerily coming back to me now. It was like the most jolting deja vu moment I had ever had. And I honestly thought it was just that. Deja vu. But wait, there's more. The way I ended up laying the ham looked very familiar. The distance between each slice, the way each layer peeled off the stack in ratio to the next, the way the slices folded over, I can honestly swear to you that I was building the same fucking sandwich that I built just a week ago. I was having one of those moments where a bunch of shit just passes through your mind all at once. And it's actually kind of surprising just how many thoughts you can have in such a short amount of time. But I remember telling myself to take the risk and just reach for the Swiss because I just had the feeling. How did you know I wanted Swiss? I was taken aback. He actually wanted Swiss. How in the world do I pass it off as a lucky guess? Well, exactly how you would think. Lucky guess, I uttered as I let out a meager, pathetic little chuckle. The man proceeded to say the most spine-chilling thing I had ever heard. I read stories on Reddit about paranormal or weird shit happening to people. There's actually an Ask Reddit thread about it right now. I always see variations of the same quote, chill down to my spine, and I have never really experienced that. I fucking experienced that last night. The man looks at me as if I told him I knew the winning lottery number for the next win. Very inquisitive look. Very, very strong sense of passion in his words when he said this. No. Seems like you've done this before. He just called out my deja vu. He just confirmed that he was aware of my deja vu. At this point, the phrase time traveler just made its first entrance into my mind. I looked at him with the most ridiculously awestruck impression. I sat there staring at him for a good five seconds before I laid the cheese. It was a surreal moment. 
It was like the climax of this confrontation had already happened, but I still need to lay the cheese and the veggies, roll the sandwich up, and then ring him at the register. How much creepier is it going to get? I just didn't get it. I picked up the cheese in the exact same way I always do, fan out the top four slices and lay them down. I was looking down at the same sandwich I had built a week prior. I swear to you, the cheese, the bread, the ham, everything was just uncannily similar. I credit myself to be a rational dude, so at this point, I was just calling it deja vu and trying not to feel disturbed. The man said, just lettuce and mayo, no toast. Hmm. Phew, not toasted. Thank the good Lord. He didn't want it toasted. This fucking deja vu is over, and it's all just a coincidence, right? Well, some of you may know, but there is a thing called a hot food tax in some places. Therefore, when a sandwich is toasted, there's a button for hot food taxation, and it's something like 12 cents. So as a force of habit, I read the order back to the customer in this fashion. All right, sir. So a ham sandwich, not toasted with a bag of chips and two cookies. He looked very concerned when I mentioned it was not toasted. Hmm. Why did you have to specify that it's not toasted? Then I explained to him what I said above. All about the hot food tax and blah, blah, blah. Force of habit because if a sandwich is toasted, you repeat the order like, all right, ham sandwich toasted with the chips and drink or something like that. After explaining that to him, he was just like kind of inquisitive about it. Nothing too weird. I didn't want to keep him any longer. So I took his card, swiped it and could not wait for him to get the fuck out. As he walked out the door, he looked back at me with the creepiest fucking smile you can conceive in your reddity imaginations. He turns around and says what I honestly do not think I will ever forget. Just to let you know, I didn't not toast the sandwich because of the tax. I'm not that much of a cheap bastard. Okay, the guy is trying to lighten the mood, right? Sweet, yeah. I know he's not a cheap bastard. I mean, it's 12 cents. But he felt the need to tell me the real reason he didn't get it toasted. I just didn't want you to drop it. And just like that, he was gone. Holy shit, I have chills everywhere. This was without a doubt, the most spine chilling thing I've ever experienced. I explained the whole thing to my father and he came up with the idea that these two men were probably father and son and they were just fucking with me and I'm making up the rest of the details in my head. Impossible. Do you know why? The man who owns the restaurant I work at owns one other, just one other, halfway across town. When guy one came in, I was at a store that was about eight miles away from the store that guy two came in. The realistic chances of these two men knowing each other and tracking me down, finding me across town and fucking with me like this is impossible. I and three other employees, the manager of both stores, the morning shift leader, and my counterpart, the co-night shift manager, are the only four employees that jump between the two stores. The chances of this being a planned and methodical prank is absolutely outrageous. I have no idea what I experienced, but if you actually took the time to read all this, please tell me if it's a legit glitch in the matrix. This next story takes place in Southwest England, and it's very bizarre. And just so you know, um, reading this, they've made a note that all of the names mentioned here, like uh, street names and everything, 
are pseudonyms. So apparently the person who wrote this didn't want anyone going to look for this particular time slip. So in August 1941, two young sisters aged 20 and 18 got off a bus at St. Mary Road in order to walk along the very familiar road to Upper St. Mary, where a dance was being held in the village. It was 6.20 p.m. when they set off along a road which they had cycled along many times. It was a pleasant summer evening, and they were anticipating an enjoyable night out with friends. They were country girls, used to walking long distances, even at night, and kept up a brisk pace. Ahead of them lay Home Farm, and they could hear the barking of the rather nasty farm dogs they usually outran on their bicycles at other times. It was then they made a fateful decision that would haunt them for the rest of their lives. They would leave the road at this point, circle around the farm inside the hedge, and rejoin the road beyond the farm and the noisy, threatening dogs. They estimated the time as being about 6.40 p.m. as they walked past a hayrick in the first grass field, entered the second green field, and headed back to the hedge to rejoin the road. They climbed what they thought was the hedge by the road and dropped down into a plowed field. It is at this point that what I like to refer to as the Brigadoon factor set in. Both sisters agree that Although it was about 6.45 on a late summer's evening, from the moment they dropped down into that plowed field, it appeared to be dark, except that there was a very large red moon, which, totally out of character for a harvest moon, both dazzled them and threw long, dark shadows from trees and hedges. They both felt an overwhelming sense of foreboding, or evil, as they climbed hedge after hedge, always dropping down into plowed fields with no gateways. They were always aware of the position of the road because they could see the tall trees of home farm and hear the dogs still barking. Also, the very occasional vehicle went past. There were few privately owned vehicles in that area in 1941. Eventually, they found a gap in the hedge and found themselves on marshy ground where they could hear a stream but could not see it for the alder trees growing along the bank. Importantly, as we shall see later, they insist they did not cross it. They headed back through the gap in the hedge and saw a previously unnoticed gate. In the hedge near the gate was a tall white pillar or stone, unusual for these parts where gray granite is the norm. Equally unusual and frightening was the loud squeaking noise that was coming from the pillar at regular, short intervals. Remember, these were country girls. As they insist, they were used to animal and bird noises at night and used to lonely country roads. In their own words, we were not town girls lost and scared in the countryside. Taking the plunge, they dashed past the white pillar and threw themselves over the gate into the unknown road. Four and a half hours had elapsed since they had set out on their three-mile or five-kilometer walk from the bus stop to Upper St. Mary. On their left was a cottage on the opposite side of the road. It had a gate fronting onto the road and a path which led up to the front door, on which they knocked in order to find their way. They were surprised at the rapidity with which the man in his late forties answered the door. 
He was lean in build and dressed as a workman, their impression rather than an observation. He was carrying a dimly lit paraffin hurricane lamp. They were not surprised as blackout regulations were in force. They were also not surprised at his heavy local accent. He held the lamp down to their legs, observing their torn stockings and bleeding legs and remarking, What have you girls been up to? You're in some state. They were embarrassed by this and asked for directions. He asked where they had come from. They said, St. Mary Road. He said, incorrectly, why that's two miles or three kilometers to the other side of Cardford. They found this strange. However, he then correctly directed them to continue along the road where they would find a crossroads, now a roundabout, turn right and you're in Upper St. Mary. When they got near the crossroads, they recognized where they were. At a later date, they also realized that to have reached that road, which continues eastwards, they would have had to have crossed the stream in the fields, and they had not done so, despite emerging a linear mile, or 1.5 kilometers, from where they originally left the road. They also pondered over the fact that the feeling of evil or foreboding had vanished the instant they fell over the gate and saw the cottage. Marriage and the war dictated events and moves which split them for a while and put the incident in the background. It was not until fairly recently that they discovered the cottage was no longer in evidence. They assumed it had been destroyed in the war due to its proximity to Broadfield, Military Airfield, and Castlemore Airstrip. Both independently visited the spot and found no evidence of a cottage ever having been there. Consequently, both women, now in their sprightly 70s, decided to investigate the matter further and checked maps, including one dated 1879, at a local library. There's no building shown at that spot or even existing on that side of the road, as I have ascertained myself. They did find the exit gate, which has been altered to face the road squarely instead of at an angle. Unsurprisingly, they do not intend to explore the fields. In conclusion, I found both women to be intelligent and forthright, and they assured me they would still be riding their bicycles if it were not for modern traffic. They constantly asked me for an explanation of the house mystery. The field episode they laughingly put down to being pixelated, as their grandmothers would have said. I pursued the question of crossing the stream. Could they, during the missing four and a half hours, cross beyond the stream approximately one and a half miles away to where it sourced out on the Holland Moor Marsh? No, they assured me. At all times, the road position was visible and the dogs were barking. They just could not reach it. They agreed the moon was not usual. It was enormous, and they found it unusually dazzling. They were unable to remember the phase of the moon previous to or following the incident, which is unfortunate. Information regarding phase identification may have shed more light on the matter. Further, they did not see the moon rise. It was just there. They know nothing of the UFO scene, but have since read about Versailles and other time slips. I was able to quote them similar cases of ghost houses appearing where none have been in evidence, which they found of great interest. All they keep saying is, the front door was solid, wooden, and real, and we really banged on it. They are also convinced that the house exists somewhere in the area and are always looking for it during their travels. 
Further, they are sure that the man in the cottage, which vanished in the best brigadoon fashion, were a manifestation sent to help them in their darkest hours. A guardian angel, as one relative remarked. They did finally arrive at the dance, where they removed their shredded stockings, noting to their amazement that, although they had climbed hedge after hedge and negotiated waist-high brambles, the rest of their clothing was undamaged. By this time the dance was ending, and the taxi they had ordered took them home. To this day they have never, to their knowledge, experienced any other paranormal event. However, strangely, in their home village, a budgerigar breeder, one Arthur Smith, now deceased, while gathering groundsel for his birds in a field familiar to him, became hopelessly lost and unable to find the gate, until the farmer heard his shouts and called him to the entrance. Perhaps this form of pixelation is more common than we realize, or perhaps it's a Celtic complaint. There may be room for research in this direction. Aficionados of earthlights, UFOs, electronic field anomalies, abductions, and like theories may find grist for their particular mills in this incident. I visited the area to study the terrain. The stream is quite substantial. There is quite a waterfall where it crosses under the road bridge. They could not have stumbled across it in the dark without realizing. This is the most puzzling part of the field scenario, because whatever they saw, the stream had to be crossed at some point. So I'm going to leave a link to this article in the show notes, and they've included a map. And you can see for yourself how impossible this journey was if it did happen the way the women said it happened. So for the last part of this episode, I'm going to read a couple just really short time slip stories. And they're really fascinating. They just don't take up a lot of time. So I'm going to kind of rapid fire a couple at you and then finish off the episode. And remember at the very end, after my outro, you can listen to the first half of my ASMR episode available only to Patreon subscribers. So this one, um, it's called Exit Stage Left. It was in the Encyclopedia of the World's Greatest Unsolved Mysteries by John and Ann Spencer, which was written in 1995 or published in 1995. The authors recount the story of Vera Conway, an English woman who claimed to have traveled back in time when she got lost in a building in London. A lot of things happen in the UK. It's pretty crazy. It's like the UK and France were... Every, it's where all these have happened so far, I think, except for the sandwich one. Conway had arrived at the building for a music lesson. Mistaking directions, she entered a door between two cloakrooms and found herself in a theater. It seemed a performance was about to begin. A man approached her wearing breeches and a powdered wig, and she realized everyone was in Regency clothing, and there were no electric lights, merely lanterns. Vera returned to the reception to ask again for directions, and later determined for certain that there was, in fact, no door between the two cloakrooms. This next one is called A Stationary Moment in Time, and it was originally from The Directory of Possibilities, edited by Colin Wilson and John Grant, and published in 1981. In The Mask of Time, Joan Foreman has described many time slips. Perhaps the oddest concerns a Mr. Squirrel, who in 1973 
went into a stationer's shop in Great Yarmouth to buy some envelopes. He was served by a woman in Edwardian dress and bought three dozen envelopes for a shilling. He noticed that the building was extremely silent. There was no traffic noise. On visiting the shop three weeks later, he found it completely changed and modernized. The assistant, an elderly lady, denied that there had been any other assistant in the shop the previous week. The envelopes disintegrated very quickly. Foreman heard of the case and interviewed Squirrel. He was able to produce for her one of the remaining envelopes. Foreman wrote to the manufacturers who said that such envelopes had ceased to be manufactured 15 years before. And here is the last one this week. And this one doesn't have a title, but here we go. A white Ford pickup pulled up to a cattle pasture near Ponca City, Oklahoma, in early fall 1971, and stopped at a gate. Carl, Mark, and Gordon worked for a cattle feed distributor and were sent to this remote area to pick up a feeder. What they found there has kept them silent for 41 years. We opened the gate, which was barbed wire with no lock, and entered. Carl said, we went onto the property, which was covered with grass up to and over the hood of the truck. They drove through the tall grass to the tank that sat close to a red barn and got out of the truck. We realized the tank was almost half full and too heavy to load, Carl said. We decided to leave and drove around the red barn and we saw a large two-story white house with no lights in front of us. The trio drove back to the cattle feed company and the boss said he'd drain the tank and they could pick it up tomorrow. We went to the location to retrieve the tank the next night, Carl said. This time, we decided to go through the old white big house on the hill and brought our shotguns. They drove onto the property over the path they'd made through the grass the day before and loaded the tank. Then they pulled around the barn toward the house. What they saw burned into their memories. It was no longer there, Carl said. We walked up the hill where it stood and there were no signs of demolition, no foundation, nothing at all. What we all seemed to witness the night before us was no longer there. We've talked to each other over the years, but none of us can begin to explain this vision. So, what do you guys think about all these stories? I think that some of them could probably be debunked by someone more qualified than me, like the sandwich shop, for instance, but some of them are just so bizarre. I mean, in two of them, a ghostly white house just showed up for no reason. Well, one of them, apparently there was a reason he gave them directions. Like the fact that so many of these time slips happen to take place around the same area is incredibly fascinating to me. And I'd love to hear your theories. Do you guys have any good time slip stories I missed? If so, please send them to me or post them to the Facebook page. I'm obsessed. I think after years of being such a fan of the paranormal, I don't come across many things anymore that really give me those deep chills but time slips sure do. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the change of pace this week. If not, don't worry. I'll be back with music and sound effects and structure next week. I'd like to thank my Patreon subscriber this week, Evan Braun. Thank you so much for your support, Evan. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Remember, you can send me your stories, fiction and nonfiction, to be featured on the show at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. You can participate in the Facebook group at facebook.com 
slash scare you to sleep. Also, my Teespring 20% off merch sale is still going on until February 14th. So grab yourself a shirt. Now, to really help you fall asleep, here is a sneak peek of the true crime ASMR episode you can find on Patreon. Hi guys. Today I thought I would really try my hand at some ASMR. I'm going to be low talking slash whispering some true crime stories today from Vox.com that come from the Charlie Project. And if you've never heard of the Charlie Project, let me tell you a little about it. The Charlie Project is a database that catalogs people who have disappeared without a trace. The site is a great resource and repository for modern cases, but if you look at its database chronologically, you will find cases from far earlier in the 20th century that will likely never be solved, simply because all involved have passed away. In these cases, from an older America, where a disappearance was less likely to turn into a mass media sensation that haunt the memory the most. Their record of time when so-called stranger danger wasn't a well-known topic, or where a woman could run a business selling kidnapped children to the rich. Here are a handful of the best historical disappearances contained in the Charlie Project's archives. So I got all of these from Vox.com. They have these all um, situated on their website. I'll leave a link um, in the comment section for you guys. Hopefully you can hear the rain outside my window and hopefully it isn't too distracting if you can hear it. I also have one of those crackly candles with the wooden wicks that I'm going to light for you. the Martin family from Oregon in 1958. See. You'll also probably be able to hear cars drive by. It's the middle of the day. I also live across the street from a an elementary school, so I think they just made an announcement. <laughs> I can hear the announcements from my window. It feels like being in school again, but I think they just made an announcement telling the kids they had to have lunch inside their classroom since it was raining. You guys mostly know that I live in Los Angeles, and I'm from California. And as a California child, we think we melt in the rain, so we cannot have recess in the rain. Okay, so... This case is about Barbara Martin. She's been missing since December 7th, 1958. She's been missing from Portland, Oregon. Classification lost slash injured or missing age 14 years old height and weight was five foot three 125 pounds clothing slash jewelry description jeans with rolled up cuffs and possibly a beige coat 
Distinguishing characteristics, Caucasian female, blonde hair, Barbara's nickname is Barbie. Okay. Barbie disappeared with her family, her father Kenneth, her mother Barbara, and her sisters Susan, 13, and Virginia, 11. The Martins were last seen in their hometown of Portland, Oregon on December 7, 1958. They lived in the 1700 block of Northeast 57th Avenue. They set off that day in their nine-passenger cream and red 1954 Ford station wagon with a license plate number 1G-7156 en route for Columbus Gorge, where they planned to collect greenery to decorate for their decorate their home for Christmas. They bought gasoline at Cascade Locks late that afternoon. They were seen leaving a restaurant in Hood River, Oregon, late in the afternoon, on the way back to Portland. Kenneth was carrying two cameras. The Martins never arrived home. Everything was left undisturbed at their residence. The previous meal's dishes were draining in the sink. There was a load of wash in the washing machine and Kenneth, Kenneth's Santa Claus suit was still laid out from a Christmas party he'd been to the night before. They also left a substantial amount of money behind in the family bank accounts. In February 1959, a searcher discovered tire tracks matching the Martin's vehicle heading off a cliff into the Columbia River near the Dolls, Oregon. I think that's pronounced the Dolls. In May of that year, a river, a river drilling rig near the site of the tire tracks, hooked something heavy and metal on its anchor. Before the object could be pulled to the surface, it came loose. It may have been the missing Ford. A couple of days later, Susan and Virginia's bodies were found downstream near the Bonneville Dam. They had both drowned. Photos of the two girls are posted with this case summary. The cause of death could not be determined due to decomposition, but Virginia's body had a hole in the head. Kenneth, Barbara, and Barbie's remains have never been recovered. Police believe all the Martins either per perished after they accidentally drove their car into the river, or possibly they were abducted and were inside their car as it was pushed off the cliff. The only surviving member of the family was the oldest son, Donald, who was in the Navy and stationed in New York at the time of the disappearances. A photo of Donald is posted with this case summary. Walter Graven, the Mul Multona County detective in charge of investigating the Martin case, believed the family met with foul play. It would have been an uncharacteristic of Kenneth to leave home that day as he didn't like driving after dark. Sometime, someone found a blood-stained gun in the Cascade Locks near an abandoned stolen car and turned the gun over to the sheriff's office. The gun was later linked to Donald. He had allegedly stolen it from a sporting goods store several years prior to his family's disappearance. It was never processed for evidence, however. Graven suspected Donald was involved in his family's disappearance, as he couldn't find anyone else who had motive. Donald had a poor relationship with his family, and he didn't 
attend the memorial service for his family, although he did return to Oregon in June 1959 to settle the estate. He told Craven he couldn't think of anyone who had any reason to hurt his family, but that he also couldn't see how it could have been an accident. An attempt was made to search the water for additional evidence, but the search was called off when a diver nearly drowned. No further searches were made, and the case was closed. Graven died in 1988, and Donald died in 2003. Kenneth, Barbara, and Barbie remain missing. Barbie was a freshman at Grant High School at the time of her disappearance. So what do you think of that one? That one had a big twist for me. Like, it seemed pretty... I couldn't understand at first, while I was reading it the first time, why they would think that it was anything but just an accident, even though they, you know, Virginia had a hole in her head that could happen from so many different things in the river, you know, rocks or even garbage, you know, some piece of metal. But it's so suspicious that Donald, you know... I don't know all the details. Maybe he didn't come. He was in the military. There could be a possibility that he couldn't come back for the memorial service, you know, for some reason, because of his job, or maybe he, you know, people grieve in different ways, because it it is also weird that he made a point to say that he didn't think it was an accident, you know? I feel like maybe he would have been like, oh no, it was definitely an accident if he'd wanted to make sure no one came after him. Or it was hubris, which was actually well-placed because he was never caught, but he thought, you know, there's no way they can catch me because, I don't know, this was the perfect crime. Anyway, either way, it's very sad. So this next story, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. Um, in fact, it, Vox even mentions it was told on This American Life. Um, so fans of This American Life will have heard this story. And I've heard this story, and I don't listen to This American Life. It's a pretty popular one. Let's see. Uh, this one is about Bobby Dunbar in Louisiana in 1912. 